Welcome to the Life in Deep Ellum podcast, exploring the sacred in art, faith, and community. All right. Good morning. If I have not met you, or if you don't have any idea who I am, my name is Daniela. I am part of the Small But Mighty preaching team here at Lyde, and I'm on the board of directors here. I'm usually chasing a toddler around the room, so if you need a little cue, that's, that's who I am. Um, but it's been a little while since I've been able to share, so I'm really glad that I am able to do that uh, today. This Advent season, we are focusing on Jesus as a fulfillment of a long lineage of God's unfolding story from one generation to the other. That's what we've been talking about from generation to generation. And so last week, Jen talked about Mary's kind of side of the story, and today we're going to look at Joseph's piece in this lineage and the invitation into the story that God has been writing. And so um, what I'm sharing could be kind of split into two parts. That's kind of how I'm going to take it today. You've got Joseph's part and God's part, and it's all intertwined anyway, so, you know. So the other night, our family was reading through our nightly Advent passage. Um, We use a puzzle kind of thing from um, a company called Tiny Theologians, and it's an Advent puzzle, so it has like a lot of kind of um, big figures from Jesus' family tree, okay? So it has like a passage and a reading and summary and discussion questions. Anyway, um, so we were talking about what qualifies somebody to be part of um, God's family tree. And Zion, who's our three-year-old, um, said confidently that people were included in God's story because there were grapes, blueberries, watermelon, and fruit punch. So according to a three-year-old, you don't need to pay any attention to the rest of what I have to say today because as long as you got some fruit, you're invited to God's story. So there you have it. Um, we're going to dig into a, 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 ma- a text in Matthew today. So if you have a Bible, whether on your phone or in your hand, then you're welcome to read that. Or you can throw your hands up, wave them around, and one of our ushers will um, let you borrow one of our Bibles. All right, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read verses 18 to 25. So this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, or as the message translation says, before they enjoyed their wedding night, uncomfortable, (laughs) uh, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife, but he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. So let's kind of recap the story and put ourselves in it for just a second. Um, Joseph and Mary are engaged, and this is a big deal. Okay, it's already a big deal in our culture today if someone's engaged, but it was maybe even a bigger deal It was like a contractual obligation. Like, they were essentially married to each other. 
That was how it was. It was legally, practically, they were married. Um, and so sometimes, or typically, the bride would still continue, though, living with her father for a while. So that's kind of this period that we're looking at, even up to like a whole year. Um, so when we consider those factors, this whole pregnancy is really scandalous, right? How did this happen? Um, another layer of cultural context, shame and honor. The culture during that time, and still largely in that part of the world today, um, is one highly motivated by honor and avoidance of shame, um, especially when it is related to like your family. You wanna make sure that your family is honored. You don't wanna dishonor your family. So if you manage to escape a physical death by possibly being stoned for having sexual relations outside of marriage, you were sure to experience a social death in the form of shame. That was what would have happened. Um, if you need a picture of what this kind of shame would have looked like, travel with me into Disney's Milan. Okay? Dishonor on your whole family. Dishonor on you. Dishonor on your cow. Okay, that's what we're talking about. It wasn't just dishonor on Mary. It was on her entire family, and that would include... Joseph, the guy that we're talking about today. So speaking of Joseph, what is this poor guy to think really? Can you honestly imagine? Honey, um, I'm pregnant, but I swear I haven't been with anybody. Come on, who's gonna believe that? Give me a break. Uh, National Geographic has an article and they title it, uh, although the couple was engaged to be married, the conception of Jesus nearly drove them apart until the divine intervened. But isn't the divine kind of how we got here in the first place? Um, I mean, they're not wrong. They're, you know, getting at the point that the angel came to Joseph. But my suggestion would be don't get your theology just straight from National Geographic. Um, but it's true. Our text says that Joseph had made up his mind. He was going to divorce Mary. Because he was an honorable guy, he would do so quietly to help her kind of avoid some of that shame that she and her family would have experienced. Um, but he still wanted out of this really fishy situation. Um, <clears throat> the angel appears and tells Joseph not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife. Because God's the reason that she's pregnant. And Joseph marries her baby and all. And the NIV translation, now when we read the Bible... Um, when we think of chapters and verses and the headings of passages, those weren't originally there. So the NIV translation decides to kind of title this passage as Joseph accepts Jesus as his son, which is such an ironic thing. Sure, God, I'll be your stand-in dad. I mean, how strange is that? Um, now, we could get really hung up here if we wanted to on the theology of the virgin birth, um, I'm just going to pause for a teeny tiny bit to acknowledge a couple schools of thought. Um, it's not exhaustive, so there's more, I'm sure. Um, but we have some believe that the text is literal. Take it at face value. The story happened as the Bible says that it happened. Uh, many Catholics specifically might believe that or do believe often that Mary stayed a virgin for her whole life. Um, some believe that there's no way that this happened as the Bible says that it happened, and it's a cover-up for what would have been a really embarrassing account to write in the Bible. Okay, Now, we're not going to deep dive into these. You can deep dive into them on your own. I have my stance. You probably have yours, and you're welcome here no matter what that might be. So um, if you want to chat more, we can do that afterwards, but um, that's where I'm just going to leave it for now. 
So the essence of what I'm trying to convey here, though, with, with bringing that up is there's some level of tension between Jesus' Davidic descent and his virginal conception. Um, when we read the text, we see that Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. So after the angel appears to Joseph, what happens then? They live happily ever after? Did an angel appear to every single person in their family? to make sure that you know they knew that Mary wasn't a cheater? Do you think that an angel came to everyone in a dream to make sure that things turned out okay for Mary and Joseph? Make sure no one would shun them or shame them? I mean, we don't have any indication that this actually happened. <laughs> There's no indication that everyone would have been in on what was actually going on here. So Joseph was opening himself up to a world of potential shame. Hit his career as a craftsman, a builder, or a stonemason. And you can go ahead and look up why I didn't say carpenter if you're curious as to that. Um, judgment and shame, dishonor. So no wonder Joseph needed some reassurance. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Don't be afraid. It's like the angel saying, listen, I get it. It looks bad, but you're going to want to trust me on this one. Or don't worry, it's going to turn out okay in the end. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And so the way I see it, Joseph had four clear options that he could have taken at this point. First, he could divorce Mary as would have been customary, allow her to possibly be stoned for unfaithfulness. Option number one. Option number two, divorce Mary quietly, which was his plan, uh, in order to protect some of her honor. Number three, he could marry her and spend his whole life sounding crazy, trying to convince everyone that it was really Yahweh who got her pregnant. Four, he could marry her, quietly take upon the societal dishonor, and be the best father that he could be to God. No pressure. So which one of these choices sounds fun to you? I think of this as like a choose-your-own-ending book. You know, those stories? Yeah, thank you. Okay. Uh, Okay, pick option one or two. You get to keep your honor, find some other nice young girl to marry, raise a family in Bethlehem where you know, your family's from. Uh, pick, pick option number three. You end up sounding totally crazy to your friends and family for the rest of your life, and you still get to carry the shame and dishonor of the whole situation. And then pick option number four, and you have the incredibly heavy burden and honor of getting to parent to the God of the universe. Okay, so choose your own ending. What, what was Joseph really to pick? Okay, um, there were some, some probably more appealing options to him in this story. But the angel says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And this, <laughs> saying yes, which is something that Jenna talked about last week, saying yes to God and to Mary for that matter, took courage. And there's a reason I use the word courage instead of brave. I think the word brave kind of gets... Um, has lost maybe its oomph in our culture, for lack of a better word. Oh, you had, um, you, know, you had spicy food after you've just had a stomach bug? Oh, that was brave of you. Oh, you have a lot of children. Oh, you're really brave to take them out. A little bit of condescendingness, right? Okay. Um, I may or may not have gotten that a little bit. But there was one time that somebody <laughs> that I had never met before called me courageous. And I thought, wow, that word really, that really means something to me. And so that's why I choose courage. I don't feel that Joseph was simply being brave when he chose to take Mary as his wife. I believe that he was full of courage. He was being courageous. 
That's just my interpretation of the text. You're not going to find that uh, specifically in the Bible. So that was kind of Joseph's part. Now we have, God was always part of it anyway, but now we have kind of where we're moving into uh, a larger focus on God's part. So despite the freaky nature of the whole conception, there's still this piece of good news. The angel tells Joseph to call the baby Jesus, which was the, which was the equivalent of the Hebrew name Joshua, Call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So this is an everyday name. It's an everyday name. Nothing particularly special. Nothing that would have said, hey, everybody, look here. It's the Messiah. It's this guy right here. His name is Jesus. It's really obvious. No, it was an everyday name. Think of the most common name of your generation. It was that perfectly ordinary. It was a name. It would have been a name that the Hebrew people gave their sons in an act of hope for the day that God would one day send the Messiah to save them. Spoiler alert, this was it. So the angel tells Joseph about what Jesus is to be named, and then Matthew takes it a step further to tie this back to what God had spoken through Isaiah. And Matthew loved to do this, to point back to things that were fulfilled from the Old Testament, which I personally love because it ties the whole thing together. So Isaiah 7, 14 says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew is the one that clarifies for the reader to us that Emmanuel means God with us. But what was this like for Joseph, really? I mean, it seems from the biblical text that Joseph didn't live long enough to see what Jesus did. His ministry, miracles, baptism, death. Joseph saying yes to God brought him into the story, but it didn't mean that Joseph would get to see what that fulfillment would look like. He didn't really get to see the ending. And I think of a popular TV show that ran for six seasons, This Is Us, anybody? Okay, yep, I'm a fan. Um, and many loved Jack Pearson, which was kind of the inspirational father figure in the show, um, for his extravagant love, for his presence in the lives of his kids, but not far into the series. Spoiler alert for any of you who intended to watch it. Sorry, it's a bit late, but you know. Um, spoiler alert, not far into the series, the fans find out that it's, he's not going to live very long. We don't know exactly all of that at at the beginning, but something happened to beloved TV dad, Jack Pearson. All those flash forwards, he wouldn't be in. He'd never see what his kids became. He'd never meet the grandkids, wouldn't be there for the holidays, the celebrations, the losses. He made a huge impact in the lives of his kids and probably a lot of people who watched the show, and yet this character didn't get to be there for the ending. And for those fans that were following along, they had no idea how the story was going to unfold. Who's Kevin going to end up with? What happens to Kate and Toby? What about Miguel? Only Dan Fogelman, the, the writer of the show, had the big picture. He knew it was where it was going from start to finish. That was the plan all along, to have six seasons, because he knew where it was going. He knew where it was starting, and he knew where it was ending. He allowed the fans in on the ride. Actors and actresses were in the show. They got to direct some, some of the episodes. But Dan Fogelman knew all along where the story was leading. And how many times did God's people in the Bible wait and wait on God? Waiting for fulfillment of his promises. Waiting for the ending, the grand finale. And they felt like they were doing just that, waiting. Waiting on a savior. 
And when we look back at the genealogy of Jesus, how many of these people were simply waiting? Waiting on love, waiting on justice, waiting on a savior. Sarah and Abraham were 90 and 100 years old when their promised son Isaac was born. Waiting. Leah used in a scheme by her father to trick Jacob into working another seven years to marry her prettier sister. Unwanted, unloved by her husband, cast aside for her prettier younger sister, yet the mother of Judah, which is the tribe that Jesus came from. Tamar, daughter-in-law of Judah, treated incredibly unfairly. Her husband was a bad dude. He dies, as was customary. Her brother-in-law should have gotten her pregnant to continue the, the family line. Um, he didn't want to. He dies. Um, long story short, Judah's wife dies. He wants to get his sexual desires fulfilled. So he sees Tamar. Doesn't know it's her, though. Um, again, long story short, you can find the really dramatic story in Genesis chapter uh, 38. But he gets her pregnant, and she joins the lineage of Jesus. Uh, Rahab, not originally a part of the Israelites. Um, she lived in Jericho, and she helped the spies when they were um, kind of scouting it out. And she ends up not only being part of the Israelites, but also being a part of the lineage of Jesus. Ruth, a Moabite woman, not part of the Israelites. She marries a Hebrew guy, and he dies, then she's a widow. Then she takes a number of risks. She's very brave and courageous. Um, and she marries a guy named Boaz. And their son is Obed. Obed's the father of Jesse. And Jesse is the father of King David. One more. <laughs> Bathsheba. <laughs> she was taken sexual advantage of by King David. Don't even get me started on how she's painted in this story. Um, and she's the mother of Solomon. Now, these people, and I'm going to wrap this together, um, these people, these women in particular, shouldn't be a part of the story of God by cultural standards. Not by cultural standards. And I'll explain them a little more in a second. But Leah still found her joy. Tamar still got her justice. Rahab took a risk, and Ruth did too. And not all of the women that I, that I listed here are in the genealogy of Jesus, but they're all important. They and every other woman in the lineage were a vital part of God's story. Culture at the time would have made it kind of strange for a woman to be included in the genealogy. So that should highlight for us all the more how important that their parts were. It's not a banner saying, look how bad these women were, and still, and still, let's include them because God redeemed them. Uh, because if we're looking at how unloving Jacob was to Leah, or how hypocritically wicked Judah was to his daughter-in-law, if we're looking at how uh, evil it was to sexually abuse Bathsheba and kill her husband um, and because King David got her pregnant, um, we see it's not a competition of holiness. Okay, That's not the point of including them in this genealogy. Um, when we consider the culture at the time, we see how it was kind of progressive to include women in this genealogy. I'm getting some like <laughs> hands raised up in the air in the back. Um, these women were included because they are all a vital piece of God's story. That's why they were included. And yet, did they get to see its fulfillment? Did saying yes to God benefit their lives in all the ways that we measure it by? I mean, did Leah's husband decide to be kind and loving to her? I mean, we don't have indication of that in the text. I mean, did Bathsheba's husband come back to life and she was 
unsexually abused. That's not how that happened. Saying yes to God did not benefit their lives in all the ways that we measure it by. And it was unfa- it's unfair. But we know that they said yes. Um, the artist of the um, beautiful genealogy of Christ that we've seen kind of in our uh, slides and on social media um, of many of the women that I um, just mentioned, the artist of that says um, or points out that without these women saying yes, Christ's lineage would have ended. And what about if Joseph had said no? You know, what if? So year after year, generation after generation, they were all waiting. When will things get easier? I know a lot of people that are currently going through incredibly painful things. Unspeakable pain, unthinkable heartbreak. God, when will you save us? When will you be near? Where are you? And the beauty of the promise that Matthew conveys to us is that God is with us even when we don't get to see the entire picture or the complete fulfillment, or it doesn't, it doesn't change the fact that God saves and that God is with us. And this isn't a new concept. God's people, the Israelites, God had been with them as a pillar of fire and cloud. God had been with them temporarily in the tabernacle. He'd been with them in what they assumed was the permanent dwelling, the temple. But lucky for us, that's not where... It's not where it ended. It got a lot better. So the name Jesus tells us what God does. He saves. He's our Savior. The Messianic name Emmanuel tells us who God is. He is God with us. And that's really great news, the best news. He came, and he came in the only way that we could truly relate to. With a beating heart, with skin, blood, hair, bones. He got hungry. He learned to walk and bonked his head. He got chapped lips. His fingernails grew too long, had dirt underneath them. They needed trimming. He was completely exhausted after a long day of work. He allowed himself, the very creator, to be created in the womb. That is real. that will just make your brain hurt if you think about it too hard. Um, Now, I have to bring something to your attention. The Greek word used here in Matthew to say that Emmanuel means God is with us, with, the Greek word is said meth. Just have to bring that to your attention. If you remember nothing today, that's probably what you're going to remember, naturally. Um, But it comes from the Greek Greek word meta. And if you study study Greek more than me and you want to correct me on how to say it, go ahead and correct me. But what, what does with mean? Amid. Among, companionship, remaining in the midst of, God is with us. And at the end of his gospel, Matthew writes where Jesus gives this reassurance. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's Matthew 28, 20. Matthew begins and ends his gospel with this truth. God is with us from generation to generation. I want to quote uh, Amy Gannett, who I've quoted before. Um, She has a book called Fix Your Eyes. And she says, In Jesus we know the rush of the loving Father to our side as his incarnated Son assures us, I'm right here. 
I'm right here. So there's this tension. Tension between the divinic lineage and the virgin birth. Tension between what God is doing and what we're invited to take part of. God's been inviting us, all of us, from the very beginning to say yes to him. And saying yes has never been easy. Leah, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, Joseph. Saying yes might look like absolutely nothing changing in our situations. Except that God is still with us. Saying yes might mean that the system is still broken and what happened is unfair and yet still God is with us. Saying yes might mean incurring shame and dishonor upon ourselves and our families and yet God is still with us, with us. And if I'm being completely real, there are times where I wonder if yes was the right choice for whatever my yes might be. Sometimes my yes feels lonely. Sometimes my yes is too hard. It's too much. It's exhausting. It's painful. And yet, God is still with me. And I really need that reminder. So in this Advent season of waiting, what does your heart need? Does your heart need the reminder that God has been with you all along in the yes or still with you in the no? Or maybe today you're contemplating what your yes would look like. Jenna talked about this last week. So maybe you're kind of still contemplating what that would be. What does your yes look like? You've been invited into God's story. Just like Joseph. Just like every single one of our spiritual ancestors before us. Every generation. And there's a quote I saw just yesterday um, from a guy named Jason Johnson. Who's a, he's um, big in the foster care world which is kind of a world that I live in. Um, and I'm, I'll paraphrase what he said, but he said, there's never a perfect time. There are just a lot of opportunities to say yes, despite the many reasons to say no. There's never a perfect time. Just a lot of opportunities to say yes, despite the many reasons to say no. So what does it mean to say yes to God? He's with us in the yes. He promises us that. 